0: Views discussed in this episode are not necessarily the beliefs of Crime Over Cocktails. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I have Dr. Kimya Neurodenis. She is a community advocate professor, a criminologist, and a sociologist. She is here today to utilize her freedom of speech. So welcome. Hello. How are you today? Doing all right. How about you? I'm doing well. Happy to be on. So you are the founder and CEO of 365 Diversity and you're a sociologist and a criminologist.
1: Yes, and first and foremost, I'm a community advocate, so I always want people to know that my community outreach is my priority, even when I was still a full-time professor in North Carolina. I focus 100% on being outside of classrooms, outside of offices, and in communities. That's where it's really needed. Well, I tell people you could be a theorist researcher, but if you're actually not interacting with people, especially within our own minoritized identities, then the effect is not what people keep claiming.
0: So, yes, I found some of the things very interesting. So working as a criminologist, obviously, there's a lot of statistics involved.
1: Well, if you're working as a criminologist, yes. <laughs> OK, OK. I don't consider myself working as a criminologist. I'm working as someone who does this work and I'm also a criminologist. I want to distinguish that because when we're going into different spaces, a lot of times people are talked down to and they're told they're not as knowledgeable. And so I don't walk in as Dr. King and Roo Dennis all the time, depending on the audience. I don't walk in as I am a criminologist instead, because a lot of the problems I'm addressing are impacting me as well. So I'm... A person who's connect like Black people, Black women, people with disability, I have a disability, so I look at data, but I always tell
0: people don't ever just trust the data. There's actual people beyond the numbers. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of things don't get reported, so the data isn't always correct anyways. That's exactly right. So that's why in Criminology
1: Criminal Justice, we talk about the dark figures, the difference between the actual data and what's, well, the actual facts of what's happening and what's reported in data that happens with crime data, that happens with suicide data, that happens with cause of death data. You know, we have thousands of years and centuries in particular of opioid epidemics, but it wasn't until Canada, United States, America and Europe saw middle class white people
0: struggling that there was a declaration of an opioid epidemic. I was curious about your dark figure about suicide. Why is it that African Americans are committing suicide at a higher rate? Okay,
1: so uh, just to clarify, a lot of survivors of suicide and people who are feeling suicide prefer to not use the phrase committing suicide. A lot of times people say attempt or they'll say die by suicide. So some people still use the phrase committing suicide. But just to let you know, if you go into certain spaces, some people will ask you not to use the phrase committing suicide because, and this is the thing, with the suicide work that I do and specifically Black suicide, I always address how there are thousands of years of cultures in which suicide is considered a conscious, rational decision. Sometimes it's considered brave in certain cultures. And on other aspects, which is the foundation of most suicide prevention organizations, it's considered something more directly connected with trauma, mental illness, and it's not a choice. So the work that I do, I tell people you have to combine both approaches because suicide work, mental health work, physical health work, it all has to be demographically and culturally inclusive to grasp thousands of years of billions of Cultures, people, definitions and meanings around the world. It's usually the power majority, right? So a lot of suicide work is mostly looking at white suicide. And the explanation they'll use is that white people have a higher suicide rate, which is also interesting from a local standpoint and national, because if you look at a global map of suicide, the United States of America has the highest homicide rate, but Japan has the highest suicide rate. And that's, of course, based on the cultural meaning of how many Japanese people are taught since childhood that you have to internalize emotions and failures in cultures in which you're told to be successful. Which is why suicide is often considered a response. Whereas in Yasi, America. People are still taught to be successful, but they're more likely to be taught. And when I say more likely, it means that this is not one hundred percent, but it's more likely. Oftentimes. You might harm yourself, but you're also in many environments where people understand aggression towards other people as well. So with that said, when I do work in Black suicide, I address this, and that includes my family members who unfortunately have died by suicide. And we look at different ways that people die by suicide. Ways could be getting into violent altercations with the understanding and hope that you will die as a result of that. So there's different methods of suicide that are, unfortunately, less captured in research. I always have to remind people, just because you can't find that research study that people love to cite, this is why I always tell people to distinguish data from real life. What conference you go to, even when people do like community presentations and trainings about suicide, they stick to that citing data as data indicates. So what that implies Is that if you can't find it in a library or JSTOR search, then that's not real life. And that omits a whole lot of people, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I always tell people, including my family member who died by suicide, it might not be a cause of death or method of suicide that makes sense to you. You might not see it represented in much suicide data. But when people are suicidal, most are not collecting data and reading about the suicide. Suicide, unfortunately, is actually quite easy to do. Therefore, people don't have to research it. When I started my doctoral dissertation in 2008, I recall when I was in the university library, I had picked up a whole lot of books. I had like 20 suicide books and I was in the elevator. On campus in the library, and a man found, he saw all these suicide books in my hand and he laughed. He was like, Is there something you need to tell us? And I didn't laugh because that's never funny. I don't know if that was awkward laughter in some of those parts, but I just tell people awkward laughter is still something that you can keep to yourself, especially when it's these tough topics. And I responded in 2008 that no, people who are suicidal and planning to attempt suicide don't have to research it, really. And they're definitely not going to go to the library and pick up books to read.
0: That is true.
1: Yeah, so... So with Black suicide, that's one thing I highlight as well. I'm, I tell people that sometimes there are warning signs when someone is suicidal. And sometimes people say certain things and you'll assume it's suicidal, but they're just expressing their negative emotions or they're expressing their life stresses. So that's why I always tell people to just be attentive and to let people know you can talk to me without being judged. You can talk to me about being lectured to about praying it away. That's very common when you connect religion to this as well. When you connect gender to it, people oftentimes told like for men or boys, they're told be a man or boys are told grow up girls and women in black communities and in other communities, but specifically black communities are told you're leaving behind your family. And that's that trying to appeal to the nurturer component. And so since the 1970s, if you look at Ebony Magazine, which is one of the original Black magazines that was very popular over the generations, they started doing articles about suicide in the Black community in the 1970s. One image that always sticks out to me is an image of a Black woman jumping out of an apartment window. I don't know if that was an actor, because I kind of doubt that they would film that really and put it on, so I think it's probably like an actor or something like that. But a lot of times when people say, nobody talks about suicide, I say, here are actually Black publications where that's literally been published in these mainstream sources. So when I do presentations I put images I say here's actually 10 very popular articles about this to try to increase the conversations but when we talk about the dark figure in criminology criminal justice it's usually in reference to homicide because it's about of course police Because, you know, they when they do crime reports and all that stuff, the data is collected and it's sent to the federal government data collection. And it's also based on this coroner's report, because when they have coroner's report, it's usually they just highlight one cause of death. They don't give you all these different things. Right. If you die by firearms, depending on the police department and depending on the coroner, which is also varied by culture. Right. There's no such thing as objectivity. You never pause your bias. If you're Black, and especially if you're a young Black boy or Black man, maybe if it's not obvious that it's a suicide, people might say you died by firearms and it might be assumed a homicide. Or sometimes you'll see the phrase death by firearms. And that's an attempt to be so objective as to not say suicide or homicide. So that can tie into the dark figure. Whenever we look at suicide data, we always have to let people know there's always going to be counties of data missing, especially small counties. And when you see the data, don't ever think, and this is for any research that ever existed for thousands of years, never think it's 100% factual. Because even when we do, because I specialize in qualitative data. So when I interview Black people regarding suicide or any other topic, it's still based on what people say to you. So I can say it's accurate. However, there's a reason in qualitative data we don't try to make a larger generalization because we're saying these are the voices of some people. It can be applicable to some other people. These people who said this to us, they are still probably censoring themselves. So whenever looking at suicide data, homicide data, domestic violence data, like anything, you always have to look at the difference between what is correctly categorized and then reported and then what's really happening. Well, the media, they censor a lot of things, unfortunately. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So the media censors it. But we also have to remember, right, that's also police in terms of how they categorize incidents. And so it's official crime data and official suicide data. Those are also government funded entities that are, that you can actually access this information for free. So a lot of times we'll talk about different government programs that allow you to process data for free. You can literally, as people, you can just go to a website, select variables run the data, but I always tell people it's wonderful that you're running this data for free through the government, but you also want to look at the asterisk, like what are some disclaimers? If you think that this is 100% represented data, then you need to read more research that explains here are the data limitations. So the media really represents what happens with the politics politician, police, and the government. I always tell people it's not just the media doing it by themselves. They are literally, you know, if you think the media are a bunch of liars, you better understand the government, politicians, police are doing the same thing. Also medical doctors and, you know, health reports are not always reflective of everything going on with people. So a lot of times people go to a doctor and the doctor will say, "We got to go to the specialist. Depending on where you are, how much money you have or don't have, insurance, you're not going to have access to that medical specialist. So if you die, even if you end up in the hospital, right, you're not going to have that health data. And we're less likely to pass down health reports from generation to generation. You literally just have what you're told is the history for your family. So that's what... The medical and health professionals have on their my chart for you. So if you die, unless somebody's gonna have money to pay a full autopsy, they just go based on what they have on foul and then the coroner's report. So that's how I tell people the media they have access to a lot of this stuff if it's allowed legal access and they're oftentimes just relaying
0: what they can find as well. It always made me so upset. How much the media censors things. Because, I mean, people need to know the truth. Unless you can really dive in and do a bunch of research yourself, you're not going to know because it's hidden. Yeah. I used to, when I was younger, I used to think that people wanted
1: to know the truth. People need to know the truth. But I don't think most people want to know the truth, right? Because let's think about what the truth entails. A lot of people don't want to know the truth about their family background because... They might find out some things about the people they love so much. Right. A lot of people don't want to know the truth about their health itself. So this is why I always explain holistic health and particularly African and indigenous holistic health. It means you have to include the medical and health professionals part because we're thousands of years of medical and health professionals in our cultures as well around the world. But sometimes people want to stick to just taking herbs and vitamins and exercise and and green tea. For them, that seems peaceful. And honestly, some people are afraid to go to the doctor or even to a mental health professional because they're going to find out some things that they think is going to mess up their peaceful routine. Right? Right. Right. A lot of people theoretically want facts. They theoretically want equity. They theoretically want justice. But then when you tell them that you got to understand different angles depending on the topic, then people want to keep their selective focus and ignore the peripheral vision depending on the issue. And they don't want to know the full story. And so sometimes, unfortunately, that happens regarding health as well, because sometimes it's annoying when you get directed to different health specialists, because you're like, okay, you all are really trying to take my money here. Like these co-pays are really, because they rack up, right? Because mm. that's the thing about America. America is horrible for many reasons, including that they want people to die um, if you don't have the money, right? So it is exhausting to be told to go to different health specialists, right? Exhausting. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the health specialists are competing against each other instead of combining their efforts to help you. So I have a health condition. I have a brain condition specifically. So over the years in three different states, I've had to tell these people, I'm not interested in your prestige rankings for your research-based university. I am not going to be data for your next funded publication. The fact that you don't want to converse with the neurosurgeon There that I gave you their contact information because they have my results, lets me know that you all compete with each other and we're just your data. If we die tomorrow because you didn't do what you're supposed to do, you're oh well. And a lot of times as a patient, I've had to reintroduce myself as Dr. Dennis, who specializes in health equity, because it was clear that they were mistreating me, because you know, most of them lack communication advocacy, but they were mistreating me as they are accustomed to mistreating. Black people in particular, and especially when they can't see your resume on your forehead, they assume that you're less than them. They don't know that you actually teach and train medical and health students and medical and health professionals, but that's why people like myself do the community outreach, where we'll tell you, we can actually refer you to people who understand holistic health, and we can help you get transportation to their offices. So that's why I just tell people, if you really want to know the full scale and some facts, you got to understand a lot of stuff is going to be very inconvenient. But that's why some of us are here doing this work to to help buffer some of the inconvenience, at least. Well, that's
0: why I like to do this stuff. You know, you got to show all sides of this because I am tired of us hurting each other. <laughs> I am tired of all the crime that doesn't need to be happening and the suicides. And it's just time that we all... Stand together and make this work. You already know why. I mean, it's the difference in power, right? So people with money,
1: and especially people with money, whose focus is not going to change how things are already happening. They're like, "Yes, we need more women, and we need more gender non identifying people. We need more girls and boys." But when we highlight the race component, a lot of people get offended because. They can problematize the gender, the sexuality representation, the health representation, the economic representation, because that's what they talk about, like anti-fascism and socialism. But when you highlight the racial component, they get uncomfortable because then they're afraid of offending people. If we're talking about understanding how we're all people in need, it still can't be an objective and neutral discussion. You have to still highlight the identities of the people represented. Because if you don't do that, it's gonna be the
0: same thing over and over again. On the criminal justice side, when you look at the big picture. Yeah, it's a good question. So it's interesting.
1: Now when I put criminal justice, I put the quotation marks around justice, right? Because it's not justice, is it? When I was an undergrad, I was a criminal quote unquote justice minor and I was pre-law. Initially I was gonna go to law school And I worked for the law school at the university and I worked there during the O.J. Simpson trial. Oh, wow. And seeing how the white women law school deans were so outraged and crying when he was acquitted. Now, mind you, black people in general tend to be like O.J. Simpson did it. However, we appreciate a court system that finally understands that you have to have more than just your personal opinion about somebody Doing something because you know for centuries black people have always been convicted before we even get arrested. You know it's like small case data. We were always convicted. So black people just appreciated the court. And of course, you know O.J. Simpson being wealthy buffered his black manhood as well. But when I saw that when I was working in law school dean's office, I decided I don't think I really want to go to law school. The problem with law schools is the problem with law and jurisprudence in a general sense. It tends to falsely present expertise regarding the law without addressing how the law and legal realm in general vary always by demographics and cultures. A lot of times people will say, well, this jurisprudence is for all of us. It does not vary, Like, but it literally does. Like, you can't have any law and say, the law in the book, say what it is. I mean, you can talk about gun laws, but always have to understand that the right to bear arms was originated by the white to bear arms, W-H-I-T-E. It was especially for white men in particular. And you look at the origins of, of indigenous people and how different firearms were brought in, of course, from the Eastern part of the world and, and the whole design of all of this, right? So I tell people, that's the foundation that the criminal, quote-unquote, justice system refuses to address for a reason. We have about a century of this research. So when I got my master's in criminal, quote-unquote, justice, rarely was race discussed. Like, gender was discussed more when talking about domestic violence, when we had to read research from amazing women who specialize in criminology criminal justice. They'll talk about things like women in prison girls and juvenile justice systems, but through all of this, sometimes they'll talk about arrest data, police brutality, but it was still like a side topic. A lot of times, it was not shocking to get through almost an entire degree in criminal unquote, justice. And you understand jurisprudence. You read a lot of stuff, but it's not like a justice based field. And I'm saying this as someone who a member of a criminal justice organization and then years of conferences at um, presentations at annual meetings no matter how much you present you pretty much can tell it's not like a justice change making field so that's why I tell people when the people who claim to be criminal quote-unquote justice experts still operate in that meaningless approach like there's tons of research but like you're not really like, you might say that you're a policy analyst, but beyond that boring wording, like, what are you really doing in communities? What are you really doing besides throwing around catchwords and catchphrases like defund police, which, by the way, Black people have demanded curriculum changes in schools for centuries. We've demanded removing police for, you know, since Emancipation Proclamation in which white men started showing up, declaring themselves some form of law enforcement. I tell criminal justice people, what are you doing? You're bragging about training police. And and I've done years of volunteering for CIT training for mental health first responders. But I stopped doing that because to do that, you have to pretend that you like police and that you value police, including black police, women police, indigenous police, uh, non-white Latinx and Hispanic police and Asian police. I just had to be honest with myself, even though I created a crime academic program, that I don't appreciate police. I don't. I appreciate people. I tell Black police officers and Black chief of police, I appreciate you. The unfortunate part is that you assume that to help communities and reduce crime meant that you have to now get into a uniform. Instead of focusing on preventive measures like increasing funds and resources for medical and health services, that are intentionally part of the city design that omits particular groups of people from getting consistent health services. Instead of focusing on that, instead of focusing on changing schools, changing the resources for schools, that's also part of the funding, right? Instead of talking about removing the food apartheids in which I'm, I'm in Baltimore, Maryland, you can go to the, I mean, it's a predominantly Black city, led by white people in particular, and when I say white people, that includes white liberals, white progressives, white libertarians, white Democrats. In other words, the polite white people who do some things while also not doing most things. And I always highlight the um, the indigenous documentary, Donlin, that came out when I still lived in North Carolina. So probably 2018, around that time. And I went to one of the screenings and there's a scene where it's like, you're, they're thanking the white people who are helping them while saying, okay, leave us to ourselves. And that's an important point to look at. What does it mean to appreciate people's collaborations while understanding that they can't be part of everything? Like they need to, instead of always being around the minoritized group, to go to their own collective and say, what are we lacking without us always having to tell them what they're lacking? So that's the same problem with the criminal quote unquote justice system. People will keep, telling Black people in particular that, well, if we get rid of police, y'all are just going to kill each other. Who's going to help you with this? Who's going to help you with that? And that's why I tell people. That's the same scare tactic for more than a century that Black people have been given. First of all, most Black people support police. Why? Because Black people, in particular parts of cities, and even Black people who are middle class who don't want to be victimized, they believe that if there's no police, that neighbors are not going to help each other. Why do they tend to believe that? Well, because of the intentional city design of people oftentimes struggling. A lot of times the neighborhood watch programs are just there in name. They don't operate like in, in certain like middle-class white neighborhoods, like where they're literally meeting and being nosy. Black like people are taught to mind your own business because they might have tried to help previously and it didn't work out that way. So that's why I tell people the criminal quote unquote justice system is based on formal social controls. So in criminology criminal justice we explain that formal social control means basically police, court, penal system, and other law enforcement which includes FBI, CIA, government entities that include military for some circumstances. Criminal justice does not focus on informal social controls, such as helping families helping individuals, increasing mental health and physical health services, and not just increasing that in prevalence, but changing their ability to reach different cultures of people. So like if you interact with cultures that have religious reasons or apprehensive reasons to not want vaccines and not just COVID, but we have centuries of people not wanting vaccines and that's why they're required by law, right? They're not required by law because people were happy to get them. It's because people didn't want them. So I always tell people criminal justice tends not to be very formal and tends not to be a place to look for advocates for change. No matter how much they do like policy change efforts, it's very formal still. They still will focus on training police and they'll pretend forever that training police, especially doing bias trainings for police, because Police love bragging about bias training. They'll pretend that that's reducing the horrible police arrests, horrible police brutalities, police killing people. They pretend it changes something. And when you challenge police individuals, they'll tell you, well, we're the ones trained to do what we do. And you don't know it because you've never been there. And some of my former students in the crime program are police. And the way they had romanticized police when they were still in my program changed when they were no longer a rookie cop over the years. They're like, Dr. Dennis, this is way more intense than I thought. They were like, when I first started as a rookie, I thought I could lovingly walk up to people in the street. And it becomes so different very quickly. And I says, well, I told y'all that. I told you, you don't have to go into there like with these Google eyes. I told them that there's a reason why I don't say good cop. There's no such thing as good cop. You learn very quickly that if you're really going to keep a job, you're going to comply with the police brutality. You're going to comply with the bad cops. You're going to comply with a lot of stuff that theoretically you said you would never comply. Whenever people say that they have a very good experience as a police officer, either they're lying, number one, And they've gotten accustomed to ignoring stuff so they can keep their job. Or number two, they're in a very small area in which police don't do too much. Like you'll see some people in very rural areas, for example, police are very peaceful. It's like a, you know, family gathering. There might be some very rare instances of unfortunate opioid addictions, but even that's very shocking to them. Because they'll use phrases like, this has never happened in our city because it's considered peaceful. So that's why I always tell people when we're talking about criminal quote-unquote justice, you got to understand the difference between what we're taught theoretically and in classes and what's really happening in real life. And most of the people in real life who specialize in criminal quote-unquote justice, they talk a lot, they do theories, research, they talk a good game, but they've over the years had to admit that there's some things that they just have to tolerate and that's when i just ask people do you have deal breakers then or are you always going to tolerate people being harmed by your employer are your uh, workshops are they
0: worldwide
1: or yeah so i have connected with people globally so it's just a matter so i'm also inter- interviewed by people globally for their podcasts as well and so it's just a matter what people are looking for a lot of people I would just say around the world is the same issue as nationally and locally. If you're looking at from a United States of America perspective, a lot of people, when they say they want equity justice or whatever type of workshop training, they want it to be very intro level such that at the end of two hours, they can just go to lunch and laugh it off together. And that's why I tell people, I actually, there's a reason why one of my models is not your typical diversity training. Like, By the time, even during our lunch break, you all might be bothered by something and you might not want to go to lunch together. You might be mad at each other. Because I specialize in changing curriculum, changing policies and practices. We're literally not going to sit around for two hours exchanging definitions. I'm not going to allow, it's very common from white people in particular, when we're talking about racial variance and perceived threat based on race, Mm -hmm. for white people to use animals as analogies. They'll say, I used to be scared of dogs. (laughs) Like, I tell people, you know, this is actually going to be like a real assessment of what you all need to be changing. And this is not going to be like a support group where people just rant and vent because that's, that's centuries of distractions regarding race. And that's thousands of years regarding gender inequities and and other inequities. And so, so that's the thing globally that a lot of people are, they're reflecting on because in parts of the world, people have pretended that certain problems are just a United States of America problem. Like you'll hear people say that, including when Americans travel. And Americans are very annoying travelers because they're very xenophobic um, because a lot of people present America as like this superior place, which it's not. But a lot of people around the world think that these issues of injustices and things like Black lives, that's just a USA thing. We have years of protests in Canada regarding racism against I mean, not just racism in terms of, you know, people being offended, but also the skeletons of indigenous people found under schools in Canada, issues of Europe. So like right now, I'm talking about Russia abusing Ukraine. The issue also there is Ukrainian people in Ukraine visiting and people who are perhaps born and raised there who are Black and brown Islamic people having issues in Ukraine right now. These are things that a lot of us have always known is happening, but sometimes it takes a tragedy like Russia invading for people to start to say, let's discuss this racism that we've always kind of downplayed because it seemed peaceful enough most often. So the work I do is local, national and international, but I always let people know you have to understand that what you think is normal in your environment around the world Sometimes it's not really normal. It's just that you thought maybe that racism was an America thing. I mean, it's intentionally because remember, racial categorizations and the origins of the terrorism colonialism happened in Europe, right? Then got to the continent of Africa, then Australia. The origins of Australia are not white Australians, right? And, you know, the origins of apartheid in South Africa. So whenever people say this just happened in the United States of America, like, Hello, Canada. Uh, There's a reason it's all North America and South America. Although Canada did abolish slavery before America, that it doesn't exist if you don't want it to exist, but it still exists, right? Unfortunately,
0: yes. But that goes for all races.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, but that's just, you know, sometimes people get offended because what we were saying earlier, when people don't want to know that fact you're kind of messing up their peaceful stuff like images of people when they travel to Italy they want this beautiful image of of sitting and and drinking Italian beverages and it's just like this beautiful image that ignores problems happening in Italy and that's it's a very tourist vision that a lot of places around the world make a lot of money by tourists because they want to present this image that we're different than the horrible place that you're traveling from. And so that's what happens all around the world. A lot of people are taught to to pretend there's no oppression where they are as long as they can compare it to someplace else.
0: So are there any statistics that really stand out to you in talking about with crime and things of that nature that maybe people don't recognize or realize? So, what I will just highlight is when we talk about seasonal
1: variations in certain types of crime based on the temperature and stuff outside, you know, people being out the house more when it's sunny and warm. There's going to be probably more research in upcoming years, or people are starting to research and they're going to publish it regarding crime throughout COVID and locally, nationally, and around the world as well. So, what does it mean when people in some areas quarantine? or they're told they have to uh, not be outside the house. Like what You can think about like a year and a half ago where cities in the United States of America said, we don't want to see you on the road unless you're an essential worker. First of all, what that means economically is horrible because USA does not, like most people did not receive a check from the government, like they keep telling us. But then one thing is issues of domestic violence, substance use, mental illness, suicide, and other forms of violence and crime. Remember, these are mostly people who know each other. So it, yes, it can happen where you get robbed, raped, murdered, and anything by people you don't know. But it, people tend not to travel around finding random people. It tends to be people, like whenever you look at the the data, we talk about in terms of kind of like a pyramid where you can see this is where the crime happen, and this is where the offender lives, and this is where the victim lives. It tends to be in like a very pyramid formation that sometimes when people see like Law and Order, they remember the scenes where in the police department, they map it out. So the same thing happens in general. So if we understand that people tend to either be family members, acquaintances, or tend to live not far from each other, there's going to be more research about how that was impacted during COVID because it's not the same as like inclement weather where it's like snowing and you can't really travel the same. It's different when it's an extended amount of time where people have to be in these tight spaces. A lot of people enjoyed working or going to school not because they liked to work or go to school but because they were able to get out the house. A, A mentally abusive, physically abusive space or able to get out the neighborhood that has been pretty violent. And so I wanna see more of that data in which not only domestic violence and other forms of violence, but also suicide. You know, the stressors that occurred and when more and more mental health counselors became virtual, which virtual counseling has existed for years before COVID happened, but virtual availability changes its meaning when some people actually need to get out the house because the support group out the house was actually rescuing them, right? Absolutely. So it's not just convenience. It's actually telling people, we can't see you anymore. So you're going to have to stay in this space that is one of the causal factors for your mental breakdown in the first place or of your self-harm behaviors, like you know, putting pain by slashing your own wrists every day. So uh, I know there are some people who have written regarding this, but I know that when talking about doing this data collection, you have to process how are you going to do this real data collection? Like how are you going to access people during a time where you're still really restricted in reaching people who need to to have someone to speak with regarding this topic? So that's what I really want to see, and the purpose of that research will not just be for people's publication credentials, but will also be a way for health professionals and medical and health organizations and facilities to hopefully start to get funds to build resources in case something traumatic happens like this again. So they can start saying, okay. I mean, cause you know, that's the thing about these powerful organizations that had this panic attack because they did not have safety nets and protective factors for tragedies in which people can't come in for appointments. And they're overworking these medical and health professionals. And unfortunately, that has resulted in substance use, in addition to COVID deaths, and suicide from medical and health professionals as well. I mean, it's really horrific for where people work. And also, law enforcement have also all these people who are considered essential workers. They weren't really given many safety nets and protective factors. So if that's the case for the people who work in these fields, think about what the average person is going through where there's even more isolation. And so this is where I just think that people in every nation around the world, instead of being so celebratory of your nation and of politicians, be more critical because like you're paying taxes, even if you're you might have zero in your bank account. But they're finding a way to make you pay taxes anything you buy, regardless. So I want people to understand whether you're a taxpayer, whether you're a voter, whatever you are, you now need to say, are you all gonna learn from this to create safety measures to make sure that there isn't this massive, you know, power outage and panic attack in which the people we rely on, which are the government officials medical and health officials, law enforcement officials. When this tragedy strikes for the rest of us, we're looking to you all to know what you're doing. You're acting like you just woke up that morning. Didn't have financial foundation. You didn't have, it's like they had never planned for anything. It's like, and the government has plenty of resources because that's the foundation that they have for military. The military is constantly ready for war. Like I always tell people, never claim that the U.S. government has not been at war for years. U.S. government is at war every single day locally, nationally, and around the world. They fund military gear around the world, including, of course, what they're providing for Ukraine. So this is just something I want people to learn from this. In addition to research, is like, now what do we demand them to provide in terms of safety nets so that we're not just told, stay home. I hope you can pay your bills. Good luck. And I, and I also hold individuals accountable because despite the government mistreating them like this, they're still seeing the star spittle banner. It's like, Governments don't change politicians don't change if you're gonna donate to their campaign regardless if you're gonna say vote or die to black people regardless of what they do they're gonna keep doing the same thing over and over again because you're loyal to them and they're not any kind of loyal to us
0: yeah I've always said that you know it's it's a shame that most crimes do happen by people that are closest to us it's our family members it's our friends it's our neighbor it's It's so scary. But those are the people that you have to watch out for. For it to be an actual random attack is very slim. It happens, but it's not as common as somebody that's been under your nose all along.
1: And that's unfortunately the case. I mean, it's realistic because that's why when we look at racial breakdowns of crime, people always talk about Black and Black crime, but every crime is mostly intraracial, meaning within race. So, Uh, Most crimes are Asians by Asians, indigenous by indigenous, white on white, black on black, non-white Hispanic by non-white Hispanic, and the list goes on, right? And that's because it's people who are more in that intimate, close environment with you. And that can include someone who you might not know personally, but you know them somehow, right? We talk about small world, that also includes crime. Or it could be something where you get robbed in a the back alley of the nightclub. You don't know that person, however, they go to the nightclub. So that's also an example of that connection that you have. It's not a random person who said, I'm going to drive to the next county and find a nightclub. It's someone who's there and they might see you every week. And so these are just examples. And by the way, I have to give a uh, just tell people COVID is still happening. Unfortunately, a lot of people are going to like clubs and parties and they're hanging out and I'm seeing all these images photo fo- and photos of people without a mask and they're like acting like nothing's happening. So I'm not telling people you got to like be at home for like five years to come because, you know, and I'm not telling people you just have to go to work and then go back home. I'm telling people if you all choose to go anywhere, please wear a safe, clean, doubled mask. Keep a reasonable distance from people who which you are not closely attached already. And don't be everywhere. Like, you all can have as much fun as possible, but, like, I'm one of those people who constantly gets tested in addition to wearing a mask, in addition to staying away from most people, in addition to not having the fun that I had before COVID by going everywhere. I used to be everywhere as much as possible. My life has changed a lot for various reasons, but I'm actually content with that because I don't want to have COVID Like, I don't believe when people say, everyone's going to have COVID. No. And that's a very ableist thing to say, because those of us with disabilities and health conditions, having COVID is not a code to us. The same way the vaccine has not been tested on brain conditions, neither has COVID. Been tested on people's brain conditions. So don't casually say, ha ha, we're all going to get COVID. Like, we're going to have a COVID party. Like, that's a very ableist thing to say. And people who are content with getting COVID on their own, they got to realize that they're also extending it to other people. They get it. Their family. And people are sharing all these stories of people who learned a lesson. They're like, I wish I'd gotten vaccine, you know, vaccinated. I, I don't care about these social media revelations. I'm talking about real life. Things that grown adults can prevent because every generation of children learns from the stupidity of the adults in their spaces. I talk about stupidity as it pertains to what police do what's happening in schools, and also what's happening during COVID. Like children are learning this carelessness, this selfishness, this overall stupidity, just because people are tired of wearing masks and stuff. You know, so many people in United States of America define freedom and liberation through running around without masks and potentially not just harming themselves, but harming other people. And that's an example that American independent perspectives and individual perspectives are very much based in selfishness and very much. And even we're talking about things like gun rights. So many people define American pride in a way that's actually quite harmful. If you look at it from like a mental health counselor perspective, because it's like, why does it have to be dangerous? Why do you have to, you know, operate kind of like you're in the military, like you're ready to, I'm ready to fight it out regarding access to my own firearm, access to, you know, not having to wear a mask. It's like people's outrage is based on usually not being oppressed, like they're not being harmed. They're being given protective measures. So that's why I always tell people that the governors and the mayors and cities have decided to waive off these mask requirements. So most businesses, most schools no longer require masks. Some don't even require testing temperatures or anything anymore. This is where I tell people, the onus is not 100% on you. You need to say, I'm gonna still have my mask. I'm gonna bring a temperature checker with me. Some, Some doctor's offices, thankfully, at the beginning of COVID, they gave their patients a pack that has masks and temperature checkers. So I just tell people, you cannot rely on what the government decides. They don't make these decisions based on your life. They make it based on profit. If they see businesses are struggling and they see the business loans during COVID have now decreased in availability, they're now thinking about the money for the city, the state, and for themselves as politicians. If you die tomorrow, they don't care at all. You'll just be part of the numbers of COVID deaths. So I just beg people, have your masks, keep your hands clean, keep a distance from people. I was taught to never use my hands to touch doorknobs and faucets anyway when I'm out. So this is especially the case during COVID. I use my sleeve or my elbow for faucets and doors. I've always done that throughout my life and especially during COVID. Don't get stupid because the politicians want to use your life for profit for them. I'm just going to, I keep reiterating that everywhere I am. When people tell me, well, they, you know, this business no longer requires a mask. The mayor no longer said masks are required. They don't care about your life. Still do what you need to do. And if you're mad because you can't wear your cute makeup under your mask, you'll still be alive probably to wear that makeup in a year if COVID's more controlled. Do not
0: ever prioritize some darn makeup over your life. I'll end my rant there. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> So people are interested in your workshops. How can they get a hold of you?
1: Thank you for asking. So they can go to 365diversity.com. That is the numbers 365diversity.com. And they will see the list of the consultation sessions at the top. And the bottom are the workshops where I specialize in changing policies, practices, also specialize in changing curriculums and really changing them. Um, and so I specialize in annual program assessments for school accreditation, because that's what I did for nine years as full-time faculty when I created an academic program. And I also teach and train medical health students and medical and health professionals. So that's all on my website. And it is a way that's very overt. So the work that I do, I don't try to use code words and code languages to make sure everyone stays comfortable the whole time, because we have centuries of quotes from These famous activists and trailblazers who have said that if you're comfortable, then nothing's changing. So I tell people, don't quote these people and celebrate that quote, but then you yourself get into my training and you're offended because you didn't expect it to be so in your face. Like quotes are cool, but the work I do is way beyond quoting people. It's literally, what are you gonna do now? So you'll see all that on the website. You can see a lot of photos that I've done even when I was in North Carolina. And you'll also see a bunch of my podcasts and your podcast will be on there as well eventually. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And I just want people to know that change is constant. So inequities don't disappear. Like racism never goes away. Sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, as long as humans exist, these will always exist. So I always tell people, don't be frustrated and exhausted. We do our part. We leave foundations for every generation, but never pretend that What you do is going to just make all these problems stop. (laughs) A lot of people, unfortunately, pretend that they convince themselves that they are the rescuers for the world. And when things don't change, they get frustrated. And we've all done that for something where we thought that we were going to help some changes and, and we've got this going. But that's not how humans operate ever. So I just tell people to keep doing collaborative work. Don't consider yourselves the rescuer, especially for minoritized people. If you're a part of the power majority, you're not rescuing people from the oppressions created by your own people. Instead, you're helping your own people, who are the power majority, to stop harming other people, right? So I always have to highlight that. Instead of wanting to be called an ally, I tell people every day, do not want to be awarded as an ally. Instead, focus on changing yourself yourself. And changing fellow people within that identity. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, keep being awesome. I appreciate you.
0: All right, you guys, we'll talk crime another time.